A dear Schiffman is a tour de force. Even in our regular interview structure, he showcases his incredible brain and contrarian way of viewing the world. He really, really gets you thinking. Adir was a medical doctor before becoming an entrepreneur, and his unique experience and career path puts startups and businesses into complete perspective. But don't think his bedside manner is that of a compassionate medic. No, no, no. Adir is one of the sharpest minds going around and has some straight-talking advice for entrepreneurs. Adir covers every angle and viewpoint and chucks in, in some medical analogies for good measure. Like, if your business has challenges... Don't amputate your toe, amputate your foot. Enjoy a dear Schiffman with me, Tony Simmons, on Discipline. A dear Schiffman, Executive Chairman of Catapult Sports, founder of multiple startups and businesses and involved in uh, mattress brands Sleeping Duck and Quali. Welcome to Discipline. Thanks a lot, Tony. Now, there are not many people who can actually claim the title of serial entrepreneur, uh, but that's a title that fits you to a T. Uh, moreover, there aren't many people who can claim the title of serial entrepreneur and a medical doctor. So tell me, were you, when you were growing up, were you more interested in business or medicine? I was definitely more interested in business. So growing up, there were there were three things I was interested in. Playing cricket, like I, not really all sports, but playing cricket. Um, Batsman, bowler. I was a fast bowler, a green <laughs> bowler. Um, uh, tech, so I taught myself to code and I was a coder. And, um, and business. So I'll go play cricket some lunchtimes and other lunchtimes go to the library and read the financial review as like a 17 and 18 year old, which yes. is a pretty sad story, <laughs> really. But um, they were the three things that I was you, interested in. You weren't reading the financial review in the uh, cricket change rooms after? I was definitely not. But, you know, Crawford <laughs> Crown was like, a, like it was a pretty unusual thing in that um, they brought all these newspapers into the library. Remember they had those like big metal things that stop yeah, you yeah. from stealing yeah, yeah. newspapers? And, um, they brought these newspapers in and they brought the financial review in. And years, and the guy that was editor at the time was a guy called Greg Haywood who went on to become CEO. And years later, I met him like five or six years ago and I said to him, this is like the completion of the circle for me because when I was a 17-year-old and he was editing the paper, I thought making it in life would just be getting written up in the financial review. Yep. And so you know, it was uh, a nice experience to me. I remember that. Um and what about medicine? You, you went on to practice it. What, yeah. what was it about it that you didn't like? Uh, no, well, so I, think it's, I think it's the greatest of all professions. Like I think um, there is nothing as beautiful as the interaction you have with a patient where all they need is help and they know all you're there to do is to try and help them. You're not trying to generally speak. Right? Most doctors are good. And so um, you're just trying to help them, not trying to sell anything to them, not trying to pitch them. And so that's a amazing relationship yeah. I haven't found that relationship anywhere else yeah. maybe teachers have that relationship yeah. with their students um, uh, or, but um, but the thing for me is also very altruistic and so I went into medicine I, I didn't really want to go and be a doctor but I was very altruistic and I thought this is something also I want to understand the human body um, and I really loved a lot of parts about it but it was not a uh, it was not a profession. Parts of medicine or parts uh, of the human body? Well, both. both. <laughs> Actually, the more, um, the more chopped to pieces the human body was, the more interested I was oh in God. that part of medicine. No, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about <laughs> but, it. Um, but the thing about it is it's not exactly a profession that fosters creativity. Yeah. And so the, 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 the view I came to is I was going down a surgical path and I thought um, 
you know, if you need an operation, like, like you want the doctor, the surgeon that's done that operation a thousand times before, and there is no way that I want to do the same operation a thousand and one times. It's just not my disposition. Yeah. And so I thought I'll take a short hiatus from medicine, team up with Adam Goodvac, launch this global reviews business in 2000 and see how it goes. And was that because you had a, had seen, you know, doing a, a surgical procedure a thousand times, you thought you had a, a low boredom fr- threshold or...? I just thought um, it felt very repetitive to me and I hate doing anything. I, I, I hate doing anything that is process-based and has to be done multiple times. And also I'm terrible at it. Like I find it boring and I want to move on from it yeah. and just get it done as quickly as possible. And my experience is people that are surgeons, they really love what they do more than anything else and all they want to be doing is surgery as much of the time as possible and I don't feel that way about it. With entrepreneurs, I think I've heard it described as the magpie syndrome. You see something shiny on the ground, you swoop in and that's the next greatest thing. Yeah, maybe that's it. And so the trick with that, right, as you would know, is um, like focus is one of the tricky things in life, right? And there's always something shinier. But you've got to have this follow-through and persistence to make stuff work. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure that having a go at startups was going to work. Well, you did a startup while you were starting. Correct. Medicine. I did a few startups. While I was and so, but you still went on to do medicine. Yes, correct. I was actually doing a few businesses whilst I was a medical student. I had like, I think that's how we might have met or I came across your, your telco. Know, yeah, I had some telco stuff that I was doing, like an early, early, early long-distance telco. And um, I was buying and selling fax machines and photocopiers from liquidation auctions. Yes. So I read yeah. some books, How to Fix Faxes, yeah. and like had some sneaky techniques for trying to help other people maybe not bid on the faxes and that I was keen on bidding on. You were disrupted by Thermalink going out of fashion. Right. Now. I was disrupted by, I mean, that was my first experience of getting uh, shafted pretty badly <laughs> by technological innovation. Like you had plain paper that came along. And so it was. Um, New and shiny and devalued thermal paper faxes, but was yeah. too new for the companies that had bought it to go broke. And so they weren't at liquidation auctions. So that was my first experience of being disrupted. And it was not a good experience to be on the wrong side of disruption. Um, I mean, it's an interesting thing. You've done that. You've seen a bit of business. And then you've gone in and had a bit of success uh, with a couple of sales early on. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that teach you? Was it a good thing for your business career to get that success early on or...? Did it make it seem too easy? Um, well, so definitely, I mean, it definitely didn't seem easy. I would say, like, the way I would characterise my entire professional life is just like an endless slog. Like, even today... Um, not, not this interview. This interview is, you know, like a bit of respite <laughs> in an ocean of pain. Um, but, um, <laughs> but generally speaking, like, the success that people see from the outside, in my experience, is not what it feels like yep. from the inside. Yep. It feels like you wake up every day and you get just battered with a million problems to deal with. And, like, small company, small problems, big company, big problems, right? And so, um, no, I definitely don't think it felt easy. I think um, there's a danger. And so I wasn't super successful early on, like a few small exits. Um, I think it taught me a few things. One is that this idea that all you need to do is build a good quality company and everything will take care of itself. Like that is completely untrue. Nonsense. Yeah, the art of the negotiation and selling and like like that is what gets you good outcomes, frankly. Yeah. yeah. And so when I was doing that international business, like a big global telco, a partnership of three big global telcos, they tried to just shaft me and take my customers under some clause in the contract. And in the end, you know, I ended up getting a chunk of cash out of them, just being intransigent and whatever else. And then, you know, similarly, just another related story about just how negotiable everything is in life. 
is that, um, look, I was pretty young. I was like 19 and um, this bank, I'd been, I was selling mobile phones online like way too early. It's actually how I met. There's these guys that run Right Click Capital, Ari Click and Ben. I know, Chung. Ari and Ben. So yeah. they were running a business called stop.com.au and I was running a business called talktel.com.au and both of them were way too early in the market to be selling mobile phones online. And it turned out my biggest customers were um, fraudulent credit card users in Indonesia. <laughs> and so, um, which, you know, it's actually quite a lucrative market until the banks come and try to do the chargebacks. Yeah. And so this big bank came, like one of the big four came and hit me with like tens of thousands of dollars of chargebacks, which I couldn't pay. And so I just um, said to them, how would you possibly have allowed these credit cards to go through? Like I put in to the terminal, like the card number and the expiry date, and they basically stupidly confessed to me that the expiry date was not used to authenticate. And so I said to them, oh, well, this is your choice. You can just make this whole problem go away for me or I can just go public with the fact that you don't authenticate the expiry date and then probably you'll have a whole class action against you for every chargeback you've ever run. Could have made more money from the class action. Well, I could have, <laughs> but um, you're a lawyer, not me. I just was a 19-year-old like, crapping myself. And so needless to say, that problem went away. Yeah. And everything is negotiable, right? And I think also if you have too much success when you're young, you know, if you have like, these people that have their $100 million or $50 million payday when they're 25, like... I'm not sure that is a good lesson in life. And so, you know, fortunately, I didn't have that problem. <laughs> well, actually, it's, it leads me on to Global Reviews, which you founded in 2000. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the first internet uh, customer review experience mm, sites. Mm, mm. Um, and we talked about it offline, but I was invited to the opening in Sydney in uh, 2002. In 2000, yeah. No, 2000. 2000. Yeah. yeah. Um, but after a couple of early wins, you guys then caught right in the middle of the dot-com Bust. Yes, correct. Um, and you've had to change a few things. Uh, tell me about this experience. Well, I would say, actually, we conceived the idea in 1999 when I was finishing medicine. Um, then I was an intern in 2000, and so we started at the end of 2000 when I was an intern. But during the course of starting it, like, there was a dot-com crash in, I think, February, March 2000, and we had to decide whether to continue. And so one of the, you know, we were talking about one of the huge advantages of no financial obligations you can just do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And so we kind of did it and we started getting momentum. And then um, September 11 happened. Yeah, right. After one year into the business. Credit markets freeze well, no one globally. Anything, no. right? Everyone yeah. just stopped spending. And um, I remember that um, the guy who was my business partner, who we both know, Adam, who is a much more sensible guy than I am, he was like, I think we're going to run out of money. Like maybe we should... Uh, do the right thing by the customers or whatever. And I said, this is how it's going to work. There's basically this enormous wall in front of us and we're just going to run as fast as we can at that wall and hopefully by the time we get there, we figure out a way of getting over it. And if not, we'll just slap really hard on the wall. <laughs> but I don't want to – but that's a better outcome for me than we'll stop having it stopping the run. Yeah. And so I remember luckily I was lying in bed sick and sold a $20,000 deal over the phone to a health fund, which we weren't even sure we could fulfill. And that gave us enough money to survive and we just figured out a way to stay alive. And I think, you know, those are the lessons you learn as a startup. Like you, you just you decide what, how important reputational destruction is to you and if it's too important to you, you shouldn't go into startups because you're risking your reputation every day of the week. And no one sees at the back end how many plates founders have to keep spinning. Right. In the oh, absolutely. And, you know, you say spinning plates. I think the trick is to keep um, 
the world focus on the plates that are spinning and not the ones that are smashing behind you because that was mostly my experience with the early stage of startups, right? And also, I didn't know what the hell I was doing in those days at all. And so I remember thinking, all I want to do is be able to earn $50,000 a year and keep doing this business <laughs> with Adam and this other guy, Brad, that we brought in, who was like my other best mate. And I thought, this is just happiness, right? Like the three of us are working together. Yeah. It's so much fun. We had so little work that literally every day we would spend a few hours doing the very early stages of land gaming, like shooting each other on a land network because there's nothing to do. Cut, Castle Wolfenstein. What are we? Yeah, yeah. Delta Force was yeah, a big yeah. one for us. And so, you know, it's like 2001, 2002. But I just oh. thought... Um, Proper nerds. Proper nerds. Definitely. I was, I've never been happier in business than at that time. Yeah, right. Yeah. Open possibilities, blank canvas. And Doing it with people you love spending and nothing, time with. And nothing holding you back. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. also nothing to lose. Like I think, you know, people, make, people who are early in startups, which is life and death, right? And you think you've got so much to lose. Like the whole startup could go broke. Maybe you lose investors' money. That's nothing to lose. Like, it is much more stressful when you're a world leader, you know, at the front of the market. Everyone is attacking you. I find that much more stressful than, like, um, yeah, a world of possibilities and all you've got to lose is the potential to build something. Like, it's very – nowadays I find that, like, very freeing as an experience. I just want to take you back to what you said as well. There's a bit of Richard Branson in that running at the wall. I think in his book he talks about um, – just saying to a client, yes, we can do this. Yes, we can do yeah. it. And then getting out of the meeting go, now we've got to find out how we do oh, this. Absolutely. So I think the, the paradox of startups is that um, you never know if you can deliver. You probably won't be able to deliver at least something and disappoint the customer and deliver yourself some reputational damage. But if you don't say yes and take the money, then you never actually get to the point where you can find out whether you can deliver or not. And so that's what I mean by, um, you know, people that um, are very focused on their social status and reputations, they can't be founders because you just, your credibility is too much on the line all the time. Yeah. And so I think you've got to put that behind you and you know, be prepared to take that risk. I've seen a lot of tech platforms that do you never get out of bed because the founders are so uh, hell-bent on getting it 100% right yeah. in this sort of vacuum without any... Customers, I don't want to go above the line until it's perfect. And I think it was Facebook that had a, a you know, for their developers, had something on the wall that said 60% built and out there is better than 100% perfect and in here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely agree. The other thing that comes with this is having a bit of resilience. So, you know, you're going through this uh, this effort of trying to build something and you've got reputation hang, hanging on one side, cash hanging on the other, oh. delivery sitting on top of all of it. Why didn't you give up? Um, I, I, look, I don't think there's a rational answer to that. Like either you're a person that can – either you're a person that understands what quitting is or you're a person that doesn't understand what quitting is. I'm not sure you can learn either of those two things. And so for me, I just think there's always a way out. To me, it always feels like there's a way out. Like yeah. I've had absolute dog startups that were terrible and never delivered anything good. And I found an exit for them because I just feel like you can just weave in and out. And like, yeah, I didn't lie about what people were buying. I just found someone that felt like they had to have that at the time. And so I think um, uh, it, it has never occurred to me that um, you're completely out of options to the point of having to quit. 
There's always a way to, to survive. Like, I don't know, don't take a salary if you have no money or figure out a way to get some money from somewhere or figure out a way to merge with something. Uh, you know, I feel like there's a, that um, quitting never feels like it's a realistic last resort. It always feels like there's a better option than quitting. It certainly um, sorts out who can hustle and who can't Definitely. when you're under the pump like that. Now, you've made some tough decisions as well in your business career, and I've read an example in the Australian Financial Review, which you did get written up in a couple of times, where you talk about amputating bad parts of a a person. So that's an analogy you apply to business as well. Tell me about that. So I think, you know, one of the things I learned when I was a surgeon is, um, so you you, you know, we would see patients that had severe diabetes, and it causes damage to like the small blood vessels in the body, especially the ones that are far away from the heart and the feet particularly. And so, you know, like if no blood is getting there, it's going to get gangrenous. And so you, you can die from that, right? Like it will infect you, end up in your blood, and that's good night. And so you need to amputate. And the challenge is this. Someone, a patient will come in with a gangrenous big toe, and the temptation is to just um, amputate the toe. And then they would come back six months later and there would be gangrene in their foot. And then you would amputate the foot and so on, all the way up till you got to, you know, an above-knee amputation. And so it is much more intelligent to say, listen, this is in your toe, but probably it's already spread past your toe and there's a good chance we should probably amputate half your foot to make sure. And it's going to be very inconvenient for you. Losing your big toe makes it hard to walk, but you can still walk, you know. And, um, and losing your foot, you can't. Like it's prosthesis and whatever. But fundamentally, that's the way that you stop the rot. And so I think um, business is like a perfect analogy for that. Like there are times in business where stuff is not working, people are not working, and you just want to give them the benefit of the doubt or give it another shot or you have this emotion around the sunk costs that you've made. And so you just chop as little as you can possibly chop. And I did that during the financial crisis and I had a very um, experienced businessman, a tough guy, saying to me, Cut, 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 cut. And I was a growth guy. And so I was not used to cutting. And I finally had built something. And he was right. Like, I cut too little, too slowly, and it ended up really affecting the company. Yep. And I had to cut much more than I would have otherwise had to cut. And these are people's livelihoods and families and whatever else. And the reason that there were a chunk of people that I had to fire that I wouldn't have otherwise had to fire was like my own lack of intestinal fortitude in taking tougher decisions earlier. And yep. so that was a, it's a painful lesson. Yeah, but an essential one about taking those tough decisions and about people as well. And especially about cash, right? Like once cash is spent, it never comes back. The only thing you know for sure is expense lines. You don't know revenue lines for sure. That's true. And so like that's the number one thing you can control. And if you're in trouble, you've got to be overly aggressive at controlling the expense line to conserve cash. Jason Ellenport in episode two talked about uh, companies with the revenue line. You might need to make, uh, you know, $6 to make $1 drop to the bottom line. But with expense lines, you take out $1, it drops straight to the That's bottom right, line. That's right, 100% true. And you can control it. Like, you can control expenses. Like, um, revenue is up to lots of variables. It's down to lots of variables. And um, you can't control those variables. So, yeah, I think businesses that are in trouble... My experience is they should cut. And in fact, when I went into Sleeping Dark, it's an unbelievably successful mattress business today. It's growing like crazy. Um, but when I first went in, they're like, there were some problems. And um, I think they had 20 staff. And I looked around after a couple of weeks and I said, you've got to get rid of two thirds of these staff immediately, immediately. 
And so they've gotten rid of some of them in, already in the lead up. And, you know, that's like a hard thing to do. Yeah. But it was the only way that we could get that business in a position where there would be enough cash to figure out how to make this thing work. And do you think also in your um, personality where you'd been a doctor and you loved the people that you found it hard to leap into that businessman guise where you've then got to be much more clinical and ruthless with people? Definitely. It's one of the reasons that I'm not a, um, a, a startup CEO anymore. Like I find it much easier to do chairman kind of role, strategy, etc. because I don't have the same personal connection with the staff as the CEO does. Yeah. I can come in and be much more clinical without the yeah. kind of faces and personalities to the names. Yeah, definitely. I, f- I find it um, very emotionally difficult yeah. to fire people. I don't like doing it at all. No one likes, I mean, it's like some sociopaths like doing it, right? But like, <laughs> no one likes, but, and, but you know, you desensitize to it over time. Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm overly emotional about it. I find it difficult to yeah. do. And, um, you know, one, a guy that, um, that ran technology for me during the financial crisis, you know, he saw me struggling with all of this. And he said, made a great comment to me. He said, you just need to remember People's careers will go on, but businesses live and die. You've got to make sure the business doesn't die. Yeah, it's good good feedback. Which, I, you know, is the best thing he ever said to me, basically. Yeah. No, it is, re- it is really tough. Um, so Global Reviews continued to tick along. You moved on to found uh, Help Me Choose. Mm-hmm which was uh, one of the early days of these comparison websites. Yeah, it actually became the biggest home loan lead generator in Australia. <laughs> how, did you, how did you find this opportunity? Um, you know, I'd, I'd always had like a bit of an affinity towards comparison type stuff. And I'd done it like really early on in the internet. Like um, we had um, Global Reviews as like a comparison site for retailers, yep. for what they provided and how well, etc. So I love this idea of comparison, and um, and I got to understand financial services really well by working with all of the major banks and financial institutions as part of Global Reviews, and so I knew what they needed, and um, this opportunity effectively came along to say, um, could we create a system that helped customers? Oh, oh and the other thing I'd say is. We worked extensively with um, financial services businesses in designing systems for them that helped their prospects make choices about which loan was right for them yep. and to go through very early versions of an online application process. And so I thought, well, why don't I just take the, all of those learnings and package them up into a comparison site? And we effectively launched that site to help people make the right choice of home loans. Yeah. We would send those leads to either a broker or a bank or whatever it might be, and it, it was really successful. I was successful in terms of generating a heap of leads. The financial crisis did not make it easy to be successful commercially. Yeah, and I think um, uh, I think our paths crossed at that point as well because I was doing some comparative exactly. tel- telco. I can't exactly. remember the dates. No, we were doing telco and energy. That would have been probably 2009. Okay. Maybe. Seems a lot longer than that ago. Could be. That is a long time ago. That is 10 years ago. That's it doesn't true. feel like 10 years ago. No, it looks like 10 years ago. <laughs> um, yeah. You sold it, though. It, it did very well. You sold it to Mortgage Well, choice. I didn't want to sell it. Like, basically... Um, Offer too good to refuse? No. Uh, like, circumstances too bad to avoid, I would right. say. Okay. More so. Like, um, so, basically... Um, it had been part of the same business as Global Reviews, so same corporate structure. 
Global Reviews was a business that, like, it did not do well in a financial crisis. Like, it was all really discretionary spend, right? And so it was going through its hardship. And Help Me Cheese actually was doing pretty well and growing really nicely. And I said to you, it was like selling more home loan, generating more home loan leads and selling them than anything else in Australia. And, um, but like, it needed capital to keep growing, right? Um, because, like, you have to spend ahead of the curve to, to build those businesses. And, the people that had invested in Global Reviews, they were not going to make more capital available for Help Me Choose. And there was basically no capital around during the financial crisis. Like, I met everyone, right? There was no capital around. And so we had to make a decision about what to do. And we ended up selling a part of Global Reviews. I bought back a part of it and Help Me Choose. Like, yeah, we got an offer from Mortgage Choice to sell. And so, like we pretty much had to take the offer and sell to them. And I think, like, they got a good deal. Like, we ended up getting an exit. It was, you know, there were businesses in the financial crisis that were growing strongly with high potential that went broke. Yeah. Because there was no money. Like, it doesn't matter how good the business is. Like, it's hard to imagine it now because, like, terrible startups attract funding today. There is so much cash. But definitely in 2007, there was no money. Yeah, and so there's really this really promising startup that was growing hockey stick growth, and there was there was no money. We had to sell it, and so we sold it. Mortgage Trust got a great deal, and then a couple of years later, they ended up retiring the brand because they didn't know what to do with well, it. Well, they made I would say there were some terrible decisions made, and the key decision was that we had a health insurance comparison business that was the number two to I select, but it was like a distant number two to I select. And we were very cost-conscious in growing. You need a call center because it's not good to sell leads in health insurance. It's much better to sell policies. And so I negotiated great deals. Like I got funds that I selected that wouldn't deal with I select, like Bupa, like in those days it was MBF, right? Yeah. They wouldn't deal with them. The mandate was you can't deal with aggregators. Yeah. And I found a way to convince the guy who I knew from Global Reviews that ran the digital side of the business, a very capable guy. I said, let's do a deal where you do the deal with me, we'll make the sales, but we'll book them as digital sales so you get the credit for making the sale and you just pay me like an acquisition cost. And so like it was, I think we did a really good job in becoming a proper alternative. Like NIB loved us, yeah. people care, small fund. Like we were driving a huge chunk of their business and um, Mortgage Choice, for whatever reason, decided to try and make it a growth engine of their business and invested really heavily in the call center and people. And um, they misjudged the market and didn't get the return. And a new CEO came in and saw the losses as a consequence of that and just cut it. Now, I asked them if I could buy it back, but they were, I think it would have been too humiliating if I would have bought it back and made it successful. I think um, it's not the first time an ASX acquisition has gone south. <laughs> Probably won't be the last. No, I think it's, you know, buying buying these kind of businesses. Like the, the rationale for the CEO buying it was sound at the time. The market was um, problematic for home loans in the financial crisis, and he basically got access to this huge volume of leads that he could use to feed the people, the brokers that were under mortgage choice. And, you know, the underbidder was Aussie. They were the biggest customer of Help Me Choose, and they were feeding all their brokers, and they played games with me on the acquisition. It's like, let me tell you something. I'm not bluffing you. It's the financial crisis. It's going to sell, you know, and they were the underbidder mm. and they lost all of their lead source. And so um, Mortgage Choice picked it up. But I think over time they lost an understanding of what to do with it. And also it probably a bit of the gloss comes off it when it loses independence, when it's hitched so firmly to one wagon. Then yeah. For a you know consumer coming through, 
It smells a bit like... But I think it's well disguised. Like, do you think anyone that used Aussie knew that it was owned by Combake? <laughs> like... No. Yeah, and like yeah. NAB has their um, aggregators, right? Like um, that um, are owned by NAB. And, you know, like A&P, we now see like, you know, what happens when your brokers are hitched to like a manufacturer, right? So I think um, that that is generally quite well disguised from, from consumers. They're very lucky. I don't believe in luck. So I'm going to call you on that. I reckon it's uh, there's more than luck. There's, uh, there's guile, there's skill, and there's putting yourself in the right place at the right time. Well, so I agree. Like there is definitely um, being persistent and having a go. But um, so I, I overwhelmingly believe in like the hand of luck and you see lots of very capable people who really have a go and it, it never really works for them in a big way. And I think maybe I would say like this, I, I think you can build a $10 million business just through hard work. But I don't think you can build a $100 million business without a big stroke of luck going in your you favor. D- but you, I think you need to be in the right place when that mag- magic yes, dust absolutely. gets sprinkled. Uh, so how do you get into Catapult Sports? Because uh, from my understanding, you came in when it was a fledgling company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ASX listed. It's now got 1,200 sports teams or more, 200 employees. Mm-hmm. And this is a, an extraordinary Australian mm-hmm. business. That's so I'm going to update your numbers. It's got more than 3,000 teams and 350 employees. Okay, so, so it's continuing, continuing to grow. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I'd sold my businesses and I had this um, – this, um, personal crisis moment, right, where um, I was like, I sold the business on Friday at 5 p.m. And on f- at 5.01 p.m. I was unemployed, but in the happy situation of getting this salary that was getting paid to me for another 12 months. And so on the Monday, I went down to St Kilda Beach and I just sat there and I thought, like, what the hell do I do now? And it was, you know, it was a financial crisis. Like the 18 months before had been terrible. Terrible. So it wasn't like, you know, you had an exit and like the day after your exit, you felt happy. I did not feel happy the day after that exit. Like it was not a good time. And um, and so I had this personal crisis where I had to say, what am I actually good at? And I, I literally wrote this list, good at stuff, not good at stuff. And like the not good at stuff list was a lot longer than the good at stuff list. And, um, and the not good at stuff list had a lot of the stuff that my personal sense of self-worth was attached to. Yeah. Like being a CEO of a startup, like that was not a strength of mine. And, I, and so I just had this choice. Do I accept that reality and try and focus on my strengths or do I fight it because I can't deal with like the damage to my sense of self-worth? And so I decided, you know what, like there's a bit of a turning point. I'm going to just focus on the stuff I'm good at. What am I good at? I'm a good strategic thinker. I'm great at sales on every level, right? Always selling, yeah? And so, you know, you can bring strategy and sales together and they give you some good benefits, right? Um, And also in certain product domains, I'm good at product. But in a lot, I'm not, right? I don't know a lot of domains. And so um, I thought I'm going to go and start doing two things, getting involved in some startups as a founder, but that there's a different CEO, running the business and um, also go and find some companies where my narrow set of skills is disproportionately valuable to those companies so I can extract like good you know financial equity outcome for myself in getting involved and so I met the Catapult founder there's two founders I met me I met one of them and um, you know what I've learned is my sweet spot is two very smart engineers that are very passionate about a product but 
need some ambition and strategic thinking and just a belief in the business and, you know, what can be achieved, and which is what Sleeping Duck is, by the way. And so that's exactly what the Catapult founders were. It was extremely smart. Like the guy, Sean, who was um, one of the founders of the business, was the CEO. It's a really commercially intelligent guy, as smart as anyone I've met. And um, But I looked at it and I thought, like, there feels like a big opportunity here, um, but we have to unlock that opportunity. And I said, how about I just hang around for three months? Like, again, like, luckily I didn't need money, right? Like, because I was getting paid by mortgage choice to do nothing. And, um, and um, so I went and I just hung out there for three months and we just got on really, really well. You know, there was amazing cynicism towards me at the start. And, you know, who is this guy that's coming in and, like, doesn't seem to really do anything, just kind of says stuff. And um, after three months, I think everybody started to understand the value that we each brought separately. And I got involved and, you know, like, um, and became, like, this kind of partner in this business and started growing the business together. And, you know, it kind of just grew from there. Like, I was a believer. It was like, I think it was $2 million of revenue at the time. And I was a believer that we could build a $50 million company here. It's even exceeded my expectations yeah, dramatically, right? The market is much bigger than I thought it was at that time. Um, but, we, you know, we that was a company, that is a company to this day that is the world leader, not because of execution. Like, I think the execution was fine. And the products are the best products and we're the innovators. But actually, it's a, it's a leader and it's become the successful player because of strategy. Like we've out-strategized our competitors yep. in the market. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know. And you enjoy that gameplay of strategizing? Yeah, I think or business. I mean, like once, like I think the only important things in life are um, like health and happiness. And like happiness, health is only important because like it makes you sad if you or your the people you care about are not healthy. So that's all that matters in life. And there's a few important jobs, like any job that contributes massively to one of the health or happiness things, like they're the really important jobs. And then everything else is a game. And so business is just a game. Yeah. And like adults play business the way that kids play their games. Yeah. And that's how I view it. And so, yeah, I mean, like it can be stressful. And, um, you know, definitely when people's livelihoods are on the line, that starts kind of edging into the health and happiness domain. But for the most part, um, it's just a really fun game where no one ends up getting killed. No one dies. Like, you know, medicine, like people die in medicine. Like, like no one's died in business that I've been a part of, you know. So, you know, it's much less, much lower stakes. And, yeah, I find it just, it's just, it's, um, it definitely is not work for me. It's yeah. just one of the most enjoyable things to do. Yeah. And it sort of dovetails a bit into this thought I've had of, uh, how entrepreneurs now are viewed as rock stars, yeah. you know. Like, um, how how do you think this has come about in today's world? You know, it's 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 unbelievable, isn't it? So I think what's basically happened is um, I, don't, I can't remember when I got an Apple IIe, but it, like it might have been nineteen eighty eight or nineteen eighty nine. And so I got that. My parents bought that for me. My parents are big, middle- five and a quarter inch floppy oh, drive on the side. Right. I mean, how you used to. I mean, people don't know about the big like, metal the sound. 
Yeah, like dot matrix printer. The yeah, screen yeah. was green. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, if you wanted the disc to be double sided, you could cut Punch out the, yeah, 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 the corner yeah, yeah. of it. And like, you know, I think um, that I was the greatest rod until someone worked out. All you had to do was cut a little thing in it right. and turn double it double sided. Yeah. Verbatim was selling double sided discs at twice the price. Amazing, right? And then someone made a little hole punch that you could do it like That's easily. Right. And so, like my my son in particular, he's about to turn thirteen, and he um, he loves tech. Really loves tech in an amazing way, and I say to him, um, like I just keep introducing him to the, that world that I grew up in because that was a time when tech was new, right? It was the personal computer was the first real contact anybody had with day to day technology, yeah. and there was something amazing about that time of discovery and being born in that time of discovery. And so, um, you know, like um, I think from about that time. You saw the very, like all growth curves, like, you know, exponential curves, they start off very flat. Basically, they start off indistinguishable from um, like no growth curves, right? Which is one of the problems with startups. The ones that grow exponentially for the first few years look look the same as the ones that fail. And so, um, and so you have this very slow ramp up that once the internet popped up, like I was, I mean, maybe you were as well, like I was using bulletin boards with dialing modems. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was like a lot of fun, right? I used to be able to make the sound of that, you know, timely. <laughs> Which nobody knows what that is now, yeah, right? And, um, I was happy working at 56 board, I think. It was, I mean, that was very fast. Yeah. You know, like it started down at 12s, yeah. right? And so, and so then you got the internet. I remember I sent my first email in um, 1994. And it was like mosaic browser. There was no Netscape Navigator. And, um, and you know, then you see this acceleration of technology starting to become pervasive. That really accelerated with the internet followed by the smartphone. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everyone's life was transformed in this way that they perceive as being very positive. I'm not sure if it is very positive. Um, by technology. And technology suddenly became very cool. And I think by extension, anyone that was involved in technology yeah. suddenly became very yeah, cool. It's true. Whereas in 1990, being in, coding a computer was definitely not cool. Yeah. Steve Jobs went from a nerd to a deity right. over that period of right. time. And Number one, like it feels to me like this, the real skills of that generation of people was less about invention and more about making things, adapting things so that they became so easy to use that they could become pervasive. And like people often say, well, you know, you know like all, all of these earlier MP3 players, like they were very unlucky because, you know, iPod. But really, like he made the technology accessible and yeah. that's what enables exponential growth in a technology. And yeah. I think, you know, that became so sexy yeah. that anyone associated with technology became sexy. And then people started using Facebook, Instagram, yeah. lots of social media. And yeah. for a while, Google, do you remember like these companies, like they were the sexiest companies today, everyone hates them, right? But um, they were the sexiest companies. And I think um, that led to this complete perception shift about the sexiness of being involved in and around technology. On the point of the J curve or the curve looking yeah. the same for a startup that fails or a startup that, you know, goes gangbusters, let's say someone comes to you with a startup um, and they believe you're the perfect investor for their yeah. business. 
What are you looking at? What makes you interested? Um, so I also, I think firstly that, you know, people talk like startup founders talk a lot about like, I'm looking for smart money and whatever. Like when I was a startup founder, I was just looking for any money. Like the smartest money was the person that wrote me the check. Yeah. And so, and like um, anything you got beyond that was just a bonus, yeah. right? Yeah, I want strategic investment. I need to leverage the capital. Yeah, no, yeah. I just need money. You can open doors for me. Like, you know, a few investors help the business. Mostly they don't. No. Right? They don't. But um, like they're smart because they gave me money. So, um, and by the way, that wasn't always smart, but mostly it's turned out to be smart or lucky. And so um, I'm a bit of a weird kind of investor because um, I hate investing in technology companies where I'm not, I don't have some kind of quasi-active involvement. So I'm not a passive investor. Um, and so for me, like, um, I like investing in businesses where you've seen them generate some consequential revenue it might be 30k a month but what you can see from that is that the founders are actually good enough to create a product that somebody wants the product market fit yeah beautiful early product market fit but also they've been able to convince someone to pay for it which you know like i think most founders fail because they can't actually sell sell anything it's true it's true um and so especially in technology yeah and um you know, like I think, and and, then, and also, um, you see how the, the dynamic of the founders. To be honest with you, my very favourite companies are the ones because the, the problem with startups is, um, like, it takes them a while to suffer, and so like at the beginning, like they're not suffering because they're excited, and then they make some early sales, and they feel like the wind is like behind them, and like you know the valuations are sky high, and they're not maybe so receptive to advice. But then, like, mostly, almost all of them, like, that, that, um, that is not sustainable. And yeah. they go through this severe hardship. And so my favourite is hardship because, number one, you get to see how they respond to hardship. And number two, they're much more receptive to advice. And number three, they're cheap. It represents <laughs> a good buying opportunity. But, yeah. um, no, but, like, you know, like, sleeping dark, like, for the first two years, like, they were flying. I, I could never, they would never have listened to my advice. I could never have gotten involved. When I met them, like, things were not going well for them. And so what I could see is that almost certainly things would go well for them. They just needed a bit of an experience and a bit of a change yep. in the way they approached the business. Yep. But um, that was a much better time for me to get involved in where things were a bit of a bit of mentorship, but right? So you're against then because you're getting involved in these businesses yeah. a bit later. You're against this raising capital when all you've got is a pitch deck and a good idea. Yeah. Is that well? I'm not a VC, right? So VCs, VCs have got a different approach to life, which is like they try to put a bit of money on lots of numbers on the roulette table, right? I don't really gamble, so it might be a terrible analogy, but um, but. Whereas, like, I always think, like, if you go around, um, like, if you look at founders, like, there's mostly poor founders and then some unbelievably rich founders. And if you look at investors, like, what you mostly see is pretty wealthy investors. And, like, they're not super rich, generally speaking, but they, they all figure out a way to make a decent living, the, the good ones. And so I think, you know, founders buy, get to put all of their money on one number and VCs spread their bets with smaller bets on lots of numbers. And um, then they find, you know, they would say it's not random. They find themes where, like, the analogy breaks down, themes that are more likely to land on that number, right? And so that's probably true. And so I think VCs, 
they see a theme and a founding team that they like and they're prepared to take bets on that. But, like, I'm not a professional investor. Like, I'm someone who really is a founder and a founder mentality who has had some success and so, therefore, like I've got, I understand finance and you know, all of these yep, other things. marketing, sales, right, the but whole really, I've got a founder mentality. And so, for me, it's all about um, finding founders that seem to be receptive to advice and are smart and are in a product category that makes sense to me. Like, I don't know anything about mattresses. Like, I do now. But what I saw is um, I understood the product category and I understood why what they were doing was superior. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in the success of a good product over good marketing if you can stay alive long enough. The startup ecosystem in Australia, I see you on LinkedIn Mm. um, calling out a lot of bullshit. Mm. Um, You've been involved in the US ecosystem, Mm -hmm. UK with Global Reviews, uh, had exposure to Israeli tech Mm -hmm. as well. Um, What are the fundamental differences that those ecosystems have over Australia and what do we need to do to improve it? So I think there's bullshit in tech everywhere. But it might not be limited to tech, right? Like every um, every industry, like has its hype. But I think, like if I compare it to medicine, like in the end, you get called out much faster in medicine because, like, it's it's um, you know it's the scientific method, and you know you can't maintain the the crap for as long. And I think in the startup world, like you can, right? Like there's a lot more. It takes longer to be exposed. And so what I think is Australia is. Um, it's, it's early in its evolution of like really uh, like an investment community funding high growth startups. Like it's quite early relative to a lot of other countries. And then therefore I think um, there's a washout process that goes on where because there aren't that many people that have been around for that long, like you can uh, be a pretender effectively and not get called out much more effectively than say in Israel where, number one, it's all this bullshit country. It's a cultural difference. Yeah, and also, like, there's people, they, they've had a tech ecosystem for 20 years there, right? It's the biggest VC market per capita in the world. Yeah. So, like, you can't um, you can't get away with talking bullshit for as long without being an expert. And so I think there's nothing inherently worse about Australians than anyone else. Some people talk about, you know, the low-risk culture in Australia, like a risk aversion. I think there's some truth in that, right? It's easy to have a pretty great life without taking risk in this country. And so you don't get that in Israel, for example. But um, I think it will mature here. I think my biggest two issues are, one, there might be more money in Australia than the available good opportunities to invest in. And so if you're one of the big and smart brand name VCs, you probably will be able to deploy that capital effectively. But once you start getting down to the people that are managing 10 to $50 million, I think that gets a lot harder yeah. to find good deal flow. And so that might be a struggle because, you know, the amount of money here has exploded very quickly. Um, and the second thing I've got a bigger problem with is um, people offering advice who haven't done it themselves. Yep. And so you may not have succeeded yourself, but I think there's lots of value in telling people all of the different ways to fail. Like, and so that's legitimate, right? Like I tried all of these things and none of these things worked and this is what I learned from it. Like that's the road to success, but never having had a go. And so I would say there are lots of times when I've presented at conferences or events and I've looked out into the audience and what I've seen is tourists who are not really involved in the industry but just think it's cool and fun to be around and then they go and provide advice to other people. 
Yeah. And like, you know, I think that there's an echo chamber of advice from people who haven't done it in Australia. I, I often give the analogy that there's a fundamental difference uh, playing poker and going all in when you've got fake chips. Right. So when you've got oh, your, true. your house on the line and giving advice about business when you haven't had your uh, proverbial assets at risk yeah. and saying this is what you do in this situation is very different to the situation I've been in with everything on the line, $69,995 of a $70,000 credit card maxed out. <laughs> exactly. No money oh, exactly. and having to pay my staff at the end of the month. Yep. Um, it's a very different set of uh, actions you need to take compared to sitting in a room and theorising about it. Like what you learn is just the different ways the game behaves under different circumstances. And, you know, I think um, having taken a keen interest in startups and watched closely and being a big student of technology companies and read all the books, etc., but that does not qualify you. To, you can be a good commentator, but it doesn't qualify you to be a coach and a mentor. No, agreed. Um, what book would you recommend for someone wanting to get into a startup? If they had to read one book, one yeah, book only. Well, that's a tough question to ask. Um, so I would read a book that is the bio, a biography of someone that has done it. And so I think um, there's a book called, you know, it's a, I don't know if it's popular or not, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by um, Ben Horowitz, who's you know, one of the hor- and Horowitz. And Horowitz, but, yeah. But like the, so I think the part where he talks about being a VC is irrelevant. It's a bit entertaining. But he talks about like the hell that he went through in building his company, which basically was always trying to commit suicide on him for the entire history of that business. And I think, you know, people that go into startups, the number one thing, the, the number one hardship in my opinion on becoming a founder is the emotional and psychological toll that it takes on you. Yeah. The skill set, like you can work it out, you can get advisors, you, you muddle your way through it, right? But um, the emotional toll is is really a shock. Yeah. And you see a lot of mental health problems develop in founders. Yeah. And so to me, the number one thing to go into with your eyes open is just the overwhelming mental challenges that it's going to deliver. And I still don't think anything prepares you for it. No, probably you're right. And I think, um, you know, having been involved for the last couple of years with mentoring and, and, and starting companies, you see so many businesses um fall over because the founder hits roadblock after roadblock and, I don't know, some have the intestinal fortitude or reality distortion field or whatever you want to call it to go on and others um, get crushed by these circumstances. And and fair enough too. I mean, they're they're trying times. Look, so I think, um, you know, not everyone is cut out to be anything. Like um, not everyone is cut out to be a fighter pilot everyone is cut out to be a lawyer and not everyone is cut out to do law. And so not everyone is cut out to be a founder. And there is a fundamentally huge difference between being the founder and being on the executive team of a startup. It's yeah. not the same thing. And, um, and there would be every founder that I have ever dealt with, I have dealt with them crying on the inside or the outside or both. Yeah. And it is just unfortunately like – that is part of the resilience that you need to have as a founder. Like things go very badly. Your personal sense of self-worth is connected to the success of the business, of the startup, which isn't even a business, right? It's like a failure trying to figure out how to be a business. And um, and 
like it is extremely challenging and you're right like the num- number one benefit you can provide and i can provide to them is to say hey we all go through this yeah hang in there it's normal keep right? punching yeah like you know how you feel like a failure and you're making bad decisions and it's not working and it's too overwhelming like welcome to the party yeah, yeah. we've just been keeping your seat warm you're right? not robinson caruso yeah, here exactly yeah. and so i think you know that's an important thing and also like it's not that important like it doesn't really matter if it fails it doesn't even matter if you burn down investors money like it's high risk they shouldn't invest money they can't afford to lose so, like, it's, like, of all the things that matter in life, like, this is not anywhere near the top of the list. It's a nice approach, and it leads me nicely into the quickfire round, which is a bit of levity. Okay. Um, who is your favourite comedian? So, it's all circumstantial. I, like, at the moment, I'm loving Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cards. I yeah. can't get enough of that. But I think that whole genre of comedians, uh, like, oh. Um, tennis player. Who's my favourite tennis player? I would say I do not have a favourite. Oh, Andy Murray, because he's a huge advocate of Catapult and uses Catapult. <laughs> <laughs> um, favourite band? Um, so, you know, I've got no short answers to these questions. So basically I'm a believer in um, if lots of people love something that you don't love, the fault is with you and not with them. <laughs> and, so, um, and so you haven't found what there is to love. And so about five years ago I looked at electronic music and I looked at country music. And I said, how do I not love these things that everyone else loves? And so, like, I got I got really into them and, it, like, you know, the whole world has gotten into hip-hop. And so, um, for me, like, it's there's an eclectic mix of people that I love. Like, I love a band called the Florida Georgia One, which is a country music band, which Adam, who my original business partner, he, like, spent 10 years getting mocked by me about country music. Never heard of them. Yeah, I mean, but they're huge, right? And so I love um, Jay Cole, who's a pretty well-known rapper now, right? And... Um, Got, like I'll have Kygo and the Toma, lesser known ones. So like I've got eclectic music tastes. But um Logic, like Logic is a great rapper, like because I love his lyrics of so of hardship. And so this is what I think. Basically I grew up with a pretty easy life. Like middle class, got to go to good schools, great network. It's not very hard. Like if I'm not gonna be able to succeed, who in the hell is gonna be able to succeed, right? It's not very hard. But I think every founder somewhere inside them is this contrarian. And so when I, I always feel like the whole world is against me. Always. That's how I feel. When I walk down the street, I feel like I'm walking in one direction and everyone else is walking in the other direction. And so I think you hear that in rap, in hip-hop culture. Yep. Like you see that me against the world. Like I think like Tupac literally has a song, me against the world, right? Yeah. And so I think that even what, what I find amazing about rap is that you have all of these middle-class white people that listen to the music and love it. But it's like they don't hear the words because, like, the words that are being conveyed in that music, like, they are very deep words about hardship and struggle against the odds. And I think uh, maybe that is why the startup community, like, that music's resonated a bit with the startup community. Who is the person, dead or alive, you'd most like to have lunch with? Oh, definitely my grandfather. That's an easy call. So, like, an Auschwitz Holocaust survivor and, like, he died when I was... In my early twenties, but you know, suffered from dementia in the last parts of his life. So, you know, I think um, it took me well into adulthood to realise like how amazing his life was, which is that generation, right? Especially if you come from like if you're the descendant of Holocaust survivors, like our lives are so easy, really. Like yeah. the hardship that I feel listening to rappers, like I don't know, my hardship is pathetic, really. Um, <laughs> so it's all inside my head, right? You know, for me, like I've got a photo of him. 
um, that like like sits in, for me like in my study, and um, it just reminds me like um, like whatever hardship I'm going through at the time, and however stressful it is, it's like nothing. It's not our <laughs> right? Like, and so it just kind of keeps me a bit grounded. Yeah. Um, most memorable smell. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I've got a terrible sense of recognition and sight, but all I am is like smelling and hearing. They're the only two senses that work for me. And so, um, you know, I would say I remember what the smell was like when my kids were born in the, the um, delivery suites. And so, like, they're not nice smells, but for me, like, if I smell anything that smells anything like that, that's, like, a special smell for me. Paul Naftali said the exact same thing. Did he? Yep. Ah, there you go. Last week, episode seven on this one. So what's next for Adir Schiffman? Um, So I I think um, I'm not very good at planning. One thing I know is this. um, Like, business and startups are a lot of fun, but they're not that important. Like they create jobs, but um, but they're not that important. As people say, like, you know, you're not curing cancer. And so, well, but by the way, like not much is curing cancer, unfortunately. <laughs> Only but, curing um, cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like we all want to cure cancer, but like it's not going too well. And so, um, and so I think, I'm not sure that this will be the main focus of my life indefinitely. I think that there are bigger contributions to make to society. And um, I feel like quite passionate about that. Like the bigger issues are much more interesting to me than like making money is not interesting to me at all. And so um, like it used to be when I was a kid, I just, all I wanted to be was rich. And then I think I just got a bit smarter as I got older and realized like, I don't know, like the only good thing about money is to buy some things, that, buy some security for your family and you can have some fun with it. But um, it's not. It's not gives you, it gives you choice, which is nice, and a bit of freedom, but yeah, it but doesn't make you happy. And also, like, I'll let me tell you my theory about making a lot of money. So you can make a certain pool of money, and that money you can do amazing things with, and it can impact your life. And it can impact your life in maybe, not, I'm not just talking about putting food on the table. Like, you can go fly first class and stay in amazing hotels, and that makes your life better. It's fun, right? But then you pass this threshold where all of the additional money, it can't buy you anything good. And so um, you can buy you can buy stuff with it, consumer items, but maybe that will actually make your life worse. Like maybe you buy a jet. I'm not sure that makes your life better, right? Um, <laughs> and um, so then what you have to do is you have to invest that money. And you feel stressed. Oh, no, I'm worried about making a bad investment and losing money. So it delivers stress. And so you can lose money and then it makes your life worse. Or you can make a really good investment and then you make more money. And then you feel a bit good about having made money. But you know what that does? It just increases that pool of money that can't bring you any more happiness and that stresses you out about investing. And so I think after a certain point in time, like there's a deterioration in happiness that comes with there's making a, there's more a, money. There's a marginal utility in money. Well, you say it a much better way than I do, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not sure where that line is and it's in different places for different people, but it's way below a billion dollars. It's probably below a hundred million dollars uh, and it might be below 20 million dollars. And, so, um, and so all of these billionaires... Um, you know, I mean, people say, oh, hey, you know, you can't feel sorry for billionaires. Like, I feel sorry for people that have a billion dollars. I think it makes life harder, not better. Yeah, I I think the number is probably a lot less than $20 million. Yeah, it may, it may be. It depends. Like, you know, like if you live in Sydney, property prices are pretty expensive. And frankly, living on the harbour is nicer than, like, you know, living far out west. Um, but um, so basically, I don't care about making money. And... Um, uh, and building, creating stuff is fun. So, um, so I don't know the answer, but I have a feeling 
that it's not going to be a life dedicated to business. I think that's great. Well, Adir Schiffman, thank you for your time. Thanks, Tony. And thank you for being on Discipline. My pleasure. <laughs>